Such beautiful music from Chris Yenny this morning. Chris is part of our living tradition in a very concrete way. She uh, grew up in this congregation. Lovely to have her beautiful cello. I want to share again the quote that, uh, that Karen spoke for us um, as our centering words this morning. Such a guide to us as members of a living tradition, a tradition that continues to grow and change like a living thing. I wished freedom, freedom to be my own self, to express myself as myself. And I believed then, as I believe now, that a minister of religion must first of all be absolutely loyal to truth. That was Reverend Egbert, Egbert Ethelred Brown speaking, and of course, that loyalty to truth is not only for the ministers of a church, but for all its members, for all who seek to live a life of meaning and morality. I love the fact that he holds up for us truth as, as a pole star that freedom to be our own selves, such as he sought and found in the Unitarian Church, is possible only when we can be loyal to truth as we perceive it. And truth is an interesting star. Well, it's, it's like any guiding star, I guess, in that it may lead to staying on course. It may tell us, you're heading in the right direction. Just carry on doing that. Or it may tell us, you're, you're heading over here, and I'm here. This is the truth. This is where you need to go. And so it leads us to change. By anchoring ourselves to truth as a faith tradition, we say that truth is more important than tradition or than innovation, that neither the way things were nor some new plan is the way to go unless it's guided by truth. That's how we know whether this is the moment to change or to stay the same. We are in a tradition that has changed many, many times, including in its, its foundational documents the documents that we go back to, to say, again, who are we to explain to the rest of the world what is important to us? In 1885, to give just one example, James Freeman Clark, a Unitarian minister, summarized the new theology, as he called it, with five points that took hold as a statement of faith for all Unitarians. The fatherhood of God the brotherhood of man, the leadership of Jesus, salvation by character, and the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. Then, some almost 100 years later, as the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church of America were merging, they approved six principles, which began to strengthen one another in a free and disciplined search for truth as the foundation of our religious fellowship 
and ended to encourage cooperation with men of goodwill in every land. That was in 1960, and the merger was official on May 12, 1961, exactly 60 years ago last Wednesday. But those principles were soon revisited, just as Clark's had been and others have been floated, used, and then left behind over our years. In a process that reached its conclusion in 1984, the new denomination, the newly merged Unitarian Universalist Association, debated, rewrote, voted, and voted again, and reached the seven principles we currently affirm and promote. The process began when women and some people of other genders chafed at the casually sexist language of man, men, and brotherhood that cropped up repeatedly in the 1960 version. You can read all of these seven principles by following the links about about us at our website, and I'll post them when I post this, uh, this sermon on our website as well. So the principles rested there <clears throat> at seven, though the list of five sources that accompanied them was lengthened to six several years later. But they were adopted with full awareness that they were one stage of many and that we would formally revisit them often as we most recently did in 2015. In fact, the UUA bylaws dictate that we reconsider our statement of principles at least once every 15 years. This is one of my favorite things about our tradition, that we have literally inscribed our commitment to reviewing our own most foundational words in the light of what we now understand to be true. Knowing that, as we say, revelation is not sealed. The truth continues to reveal itself to us. We continue to grow, we hope, in wisdom and understanding. And so we have to keep looking to that pole star and say, is this a time to keep going in the direction we're going? Is it a time to change something? The last time we considered the principles in 2015, we decided they're good. They're good the way they are. But we will reconsider them again by bylaws by 2030. As Warren Ross wrote in Unitarian Universalist World Magazine in 2000, we would today have difficulty saying the statement about the brotherhood of man, the leadership of Jesus by Clark, and all that. Without embarrassment and lots of sickness, he's saying, S-I-C-ness. Yet the people who did say them were just as intelligent, as in tune with their times, and as committed to reason and free thinking as we are. In 2020, when everyone presumably will have perfect vision, he foresaw, our current principles and purposes may also be perceived to have inadequacies that demand radical rewriting. And therein lies our genius. It's a process that is rightly called renewal or regeneration, and that is what has not changed, and let us hope will remain unchanged 20 or even 100 years from now. Amen, Mr. Ross. Thank you for saying so eloquently what is in my heart. Now, the Reverend 
Egbert Ethelred Brown was from Jamaica and a passionate advocate of self-government for his country, which was still in his time a colony of the British Empire. He was raised Episcopalian, but found himself more and more at odds with the doctrine of his church. This may be a familiar experience to many of us. In his case, one of the things that really bothered him was the doctrine of the Trinity. He was deeply gratified to discover that his Unitarian theology was affirmed by the scholarship of centuries and that there was a Unitarian church in the United States. In a leap of faith, he moved himself and his family to a new country, coming to the United States so that he could study at Meadville Theological School and pursue ordination. No black man had ever been ordained a Unitarian minister in the United States. Brown became the first, but he was told in no uncertain terms that no US congregation would call a black man to minister to them. He proposed to begin a new congregation in Harlem. The American Association, uh, Unitarian Association said, well, go right ahead. They even gave him some money, but they refused to allow him to affiliate with them, the AUA. I try to imagine his frame of mind when he received this news. And what must have been in his heart, in his sinews and bones and mind to go on to found Harlem Community Church anyway? It was a small U Unitarian church, Unitarian in its theology. And as I say, the AUA gave him a little financial support now and then, but soon it dropped even that. When he founded the church, it was 1920, the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance, that thrilling period that we now wisely recognize as a renaissance, not only for Harlem, but for the arts in the United States and the world. Music, art, literature, dance burst forth in a fountain of innovation and inspiration, and Harlem was at the center of it. Brown was there. His church was there. And Unitarianism as an institution could have been there, but declined to do so. To this day, there is no Unitarian Universalist church in New York City, north of 80th Street. It's not as if we are booming in New York either. In a city of over 8 million souls, fewer than 2,000 are members of a Unitarian Universalist church. I bring up this story as I could bring up many others. Not to wring our hands about things that can't be changed. The past is the past. And not, worse still, to wallow in guilt as Grace Lee Boggs urges us to do. We look at the past in order to shape the future that we want. How we tell our stories, as she says, triumphantly or self-critically, has a lot to do with whether we cut short or advance our evolution as human beings. In other words, again, are we going to be guided by the truth? Are we going to look at our past 
stories and say, here's how they deviate from what we see as the truth now. Let us reorient ourselves. And as she went on to say, love isn't about what we did yesterday. It's about what we do today and tomorrow and the day after. So as a congregation in a wider denomination that is called to follow love and truth, we look to the past in order to follow those. In order to build the future that we want. As a contemporary Unitarian Universalist minister, Mark Morrison Reads asks, can you imagine how we would be enriched today if there was a vibrant UU congregation in Harlem that had been around for almost 100 years. That can be our future. We can't go back and make it have been there for 100 years, but we can say, what do we want to do now so that the people 100 years ago will say, well done, thank you. This is why we have the vibrant communities that we do. Reverend Morrison Reed is our most, most faithful chronicler of such attempts of people of color, especially African Americans like himself, to breach the walls of our tradition when they were guarded by those who saw whiteness as a core part of our identity. He notes numerous other lost opportunities, and I'll quote him here. Fateful year when Reverend Brown decided he was going to start his church Anyway, in 1920, 10 year old Jeffrey Campbell discovered universalism and on his own began attending First Universalist Society in Nashua, New Hampshire, bringing his little sister along. In 1929, Campbell enrolled in the theological school at St. Lawrence University, a universalist seminary. 50 years later, Campbell told me, Morrison Reed, that when he was admitted to the seminary, the superintendent of the New York State Universalist Convention complained to the dean, John Murray Atwood, why are we wasting the denomination's money on a word I will not speak but begins with N? Campbell graduated in 1935, but the Universalists could not find a congregation willing to settle him, nor in 1937 could the Unitarians. The same was true for Lewis McGee when he approached the AUA in 1927, Harry V. Richardson in 1930, Eugene Sparrow in 1949, McGee again in 1956. The list goes on. And in my own time, as someone who's been a minister for only about 20 years, I can think of African American, Latino, indigenous, and Asian ministers who found it hard to find a supportive congregation, who drifted away or found some other work while staying at the margins of our communities. I can think of many other lay members who came seeking a faith just like ours, but were met by subtle yet unmistakable messages that they didn't belong, that they couldn't possibly be interested in Unitarian Universalism because their background was Catholic. 
or because we were an upper middle class church, or because we don't worship the way their people do. The implication being that if there is a difference between us, the church as it is today, and these people who are coming in the door, well, the church isn't going to change to adapt any adapt to them, to adopt any of their ways. Even though that is exactly what our songs do, what our congregations do, what our ways do, that this is what we have always done at our best. Adopt the new truth brought to us by new people. Adapt our tradition accordingly. The way in one of our most beloved hymns, Blue Boat Home, that we've just sung together, Peter Meyer took a very old song that we know well, that we sing in a different way in our hymnals and said, let's change it a little. Let's change the rhythm. Let's make it sound a little bit more like this 21st century. And he brought us something beautiful. Unitarian Universalism appeals to people of many, many circumstances. As our global chalice lighting reminds us whenever we use it. Today's words came from the Unitarians in Burundi. Others have come from South Africa, from the Netherlands, from Colombia, from all over the world, just as we share words and wisdom from many, many times. But racism, it's part of our culture. It's the water we swim in. And as Morrison Reed writes, it is our inheritance and controls us in ways we cannot imagine. However, simply calling them out, he says, offers little illumination. What we need is to understand, for understanding might help us make different choices today. And that understanding deepens when we turn from thinking of racism as a matter of attitude, of prejudice in the mind of, individual, of, the, of the individual, to recognizing how an assumption that white is right is embedded in the systems and structures of our society. It doesn't always wear a white hood. It's very subtle. But if you're a person of color, oh, you know it when you come up against it. Well, you know, systemic racism is another sermon, but some remedies for it are here right now among us, within our congregation, within our wider community, and within our tradition. So I want to just mention each of those just briefly before I close. Within the congregation, at this moment, we have dismantling white supremacy. This is a learning space for white people. It's formally called white folks dismantling white supremacy. Um, and we call it that because it's so important for white folks to have that space, to explore together. People of color are warmly welcome. Just advise that it's a place for white people to ask the elementary questions and process the new to us information that is probably old hat for people of color and often painful for them to revisit. I and the rest of the worship team will be working this year, and I'm sure for many years into the future, on decentering whiteness in our, cent in our central activity, the heart of our ministry in the community. 
Sunday worship. And we do not have an organization yet, but I encourage and will happily, um, happily help people make the connections if people of color within our congregation which wish to form a chapter of DRUM, Diverse Revolutionary UU Multicultural Multiracial Ministries, um, which is the umbrella organization for people of color in UU congregations and organizations. That's our congregation. In the wider community, well, just this Saturday, this Saturday coming up on the 22nd, we have a marvelous opportunity. It's listed in your order of service. Um, what does an, an anti-racist community look like? This is a conversation between doc, uh, Dr. Julie Lithcott-Hames and Reverend Coloma Smith, our neighbor right around the corner at University AME Church. Mark Morrison Reed asks us again and again to imagine the world that we might inhabit if we were guided by anti-racism. This, this uh, Zoom conversation between Reverend Smith and Dr. Lithcott Hames is a grand chance to be led toward that world. For people of color, I hope um, you will come and join their vo your voices to them, theirs, as I know you're already doing. For white people, I hope you will listen to two of the intellectual leaders and social change leaders of our community, Reverend Smith and Dr. Lithcott Hames, and also that you will listen to the people of color at UUCPA and be guided by their vision. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree with every single thing that, that these two fine people um, suggest, but to hear from them who have lived in this community as people of color for many years. What would it look like to you for Palo Alto and of course its environs to be an anti-racist community? What an opportunity to learn, to just listen and absorb and reflect and say, let's go there, let's follow them. And in Unitarian Universalism, we also have remedies for the racism, the white supremacy that is deep within our culture. This practice of following truth, this commitment to acting in love and whatever we perceive right now to be the right thing whether that means changing radically, changing just a little bit, or staying the course that we are on, we are invited to be true to the world as we perceive it right now. So one such way that is happening in the Unitarian Universalism right now is the eighth principle. A link is given there at the end of your order of service. The eighth principle, if we adopt it, will commit us to, quote, journeying towards spiritual journey towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably, that is accountably to people of color, dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. Can I ask a question to the white people in the room? Just for a moment here. Are you editing that in your head? Because I do that. I do that too. Can we agree to honor the leadership of people of color for once? White people have led 
all this time have led our country, have led our congregations, have led our association. Clearly, it's not working perfectly. As Ibram Kendi reminds us in the reading that Sally shared, doing the same thing and expecting a different result is insanity. What if we did as Kendi urges us, assessed our methods and leaders and organizations by their results of policy change and equity? How are they doing? What if we dropped our ideology, the things that we were taught that we don't even know we don't even know how steep they are in the assumptions of people we shun, people we abhor, people who call themselves proudly white supremacists. What if we dropped any ideology and instead looked at the problems that we want to address, the threats to our ideals of justice, freedom, and equity? What I hear people of color saying, what, I've hear, what they've been saying for a very long time, is that we need to address the problems in a different way than we have been doing. What makes this moment promising in Unitarian Universalism is that at this moment, so many white people are listening. And not by coincidence, also happening in this moment in our faith tradition is that there are more people of color among our new ministers, among our seminarians, among our leaders than in any time, certainly in my 20-year career, and many others who've been watching for a long time say, than they can remember ever. One of my mentors in anti-racism says, it is where she feels the most hope, and promise for real change. In my grim moments, I remember those words. I think, I hope she is right, and she knows so much more than I do about what it is like to be a person of color in this beautiful and imperfect and changing faith. So friends, we have inherited a living tradition. It has changed many times on its way to us. Let us be guided by our pole star of truth and held by love as we seek to move into the future in a way that will honor the best in our tradition. So may it be.